So glad you're here this morning. Uh, we are in week five, as Alex said, of our series that we're calling In All Seasons. Um, originally scheduled to be seven weeks until a couple weeks ago, I decided, you know what, uh, next week on Easter, I'm going in an entirely different direction. So uh, not that the message is going to change, but I'm not going to be in Psalms. So this is now week five of six as, our, as we walk through uh, different Psalms and we see that through all of them, regardless of what scenario, what circumstance in life, what emotion is felt in the moment, all of them point to the truth of who God is and the truth of what he's done. And so as we walk through that, I hope that what is clear is, is that this picture is started to piece together that, that regardless of what's going on in my life, the word of God is the truth that speaks to that. And it pertains to all seasons of life. So this morning, uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time in Psalm 51. Uh, but if, if you got your Bibles, don't turn there yet. Because Psalm 51 plays off of another scenario in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 51 is quite the emotional roller coaster ride. Psalm 51 is a response to another story that some of you may know quite well, others of you may not know as well. And so uh, in order to get the context and help you understand what David is writing, why he says the things he says, uh, we're going to open up to 2 Samuel. And the story that we're going to start in is found in chapter 12, but it starts a little bit earlier in chapter 11. I want to take you to this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where David has an interaction with the prophet Nathan. Nathan is going to craft this story. He's going to craft this, uh, this analogy. Listen to how this interaction goes. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. And instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for, for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And to understand the context of what Nathan is telling David, you need to go back to chapter 11. And if you know the story, you know that David is standing overlooking all of his kingdom. And Bathsheba had taken the opportunity to go on her rooftop and sunbathe. 
David in this moment decides that, that I'm the king. What I say goes and I've decided I want her as my own. And so David goes, if you know the story, he sleeps with Bathsheba. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, David decides I've got to cover this up. I've got to make sure that I look better in this situation. And so he goes and he has Uriah killed. He sends him to the front lines in battle. And he says, listen, everyone else at the signal retreat, leave Uriah there so that he will absolutely be killed. And then I won't feel as bad about what I've done. And this is the scenario that happens right before Nathan has come and said, picture this. What do you, what do you think should happen in this moment, and David burns with anger. It's in this moment that David starts to recognize the severity of his sin. And it leads him to craft what he does in Psalm 51. But, but there's a key moment at the end of this interaction between Nathan and David where, where David comes to a conclusion that I pray you and I will come to by the end of this morning. He says in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Not trying to cover up what he's done. Not trying to give excuses to say, well, this is just how God has made me. This is, this is who I am. No, he recognizes the depravity of himself in this moment. And he says, in all of this, what I recognize is first and foremost, I have sinned against the Lord. And so it leads him to craft what he does in Psalm 51. Now recognize this. David is at the pinnacle of his life. David has been promised, you're going to be the king over Israel, and that has now come. David has everything that he could ever want in this life, and what he does, and he decides to take. David is at the pinnacle of his life, and John MacArthur would say it this way. As we look at Psalm 51, as, as David recognizes that, that I have everything, and yet in all of this, I've still sinned against the Lord. David crafts Psalm 51, and John MacArthur says it this way. Psalm 51 has the three marks of true confession. The first one is to see your sin for what it is. The second one is to see God for who he is. And the third mark of true confession is to see yourself for who you are. These three things cannot be separated. As we talk about this idea of confessing our sin to the Lord and to one another, what cannot be separated is these three things. If we get any of these wrong, we've completely missed the point of confession. It's just feeling guilty in a moment. But to fail to see the severity of our sin leads us to grossly underestimate our need for forgiveness. To fail to recognize the holiness of God leads us to grossly underestimate his hatred of sin. And to fail to see ourselves for who we are leads us to grossly underestimate the magnitude of God's redemption for us through his son, Jesus Christ. You have to get these three marks right. And so the three marks of true confession, see your sin for what it is. See God for who he is and see yourself for who you are. And Psalm 51 has all of those. So David writes, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. One of the things that is so important for you and I to understand as we, we read these passages and we study and we hear them preached is, is the context behind it. So again, I want to make sure you understand what is going on in this moment to start to see why David says what he does and why he has so much emotion in this moment. In the case of Psalm 51, David's grievous sin, his attempted cover-up by having Uriah murdered, and his confrontation with the prophet Nathan have led him to a desperate spot where he recognizes the depths of his own sin. So what you're going to see in Psalm 51 is, is David coming to a true recognition of who he is and what he's done. Don't miss that. But David isn't just sad in the moment. Because what David is going to recognize in Psalm 51, and I hope that you and I will come to this conclusion as well, is, is it's not just a momentary sin. David comes to the conclusion, this is who I am. This is my nature. It's not just sin in a moment that I'm feeling sorry for. I recognize that, that this pervades every ounce of my being. Sin is who I am. Left to my own devices. And so it helps you read the first verse with the desperation of a man who has recognized his sin before God and his utter incapability to do anything about it. David recognizes, this is who I am and I, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I, I, there's nothing in me that can rectify who I am. One of the questions that I hear most often from, from immature believers, from non-believers to, to social media alike. I, I see it all over the place, and I'm sure you've either said it, you've heard it, or you've read it. The question is, how could a loving God punish people? You ever thought that yourself? You ever asked the question yourself? There's not many things that I can point and say, I know the exact root of this question. There's a lot of things I gotta dig through in, in certain scenarios, but this one, this question, I can tell you exactly the root of where it comes from. The root of this question, how could a loving God punish people? How could a loving God send people to hell is this. A person who does not understand the depths of their sin. That's the root of the question. The root of that question is a person who does not understand the depths of their sin. Because if I'm not that bad, if I, if I can claim the title for myself that, that I'm a pretty good person by, by our own standards, and if I come to the conclusion that I'm not that bad, especially as compared to someone else, then the love of God seems like something that I'm entitled to. Because after all, who wouldn't want to love me, right? This is the question that we, we would ask ourselves. If, if I'm not that bad, then why wouldn't God love me? And if I'm entitled to God's love for me, then God's grace through Jesus on the cross feels bland. 
and an eternity in hell just feels mean. Church, we have to have a proper view of ourselves in order to understand the grace of Jesus Christ. What David has come to, the conclusion in Psalm 51 is, there is nothing good in me. I am nothing left to my own devices. I am nothing but sin and pain and death. David recognizes just in the first verse that I am utterly depraved. Sin is everywhere in my nature. We have to come to grips with this. This doesn't jive with, with the good old boy lifestyle that, that many of us live. We're, we're a good person by at least our collective standards. And the reality of it is that never lines up with the biblical idea of your sin and my sinful nature. We are utterly depraved by sin, incapable of saving ourselves. And you got to come to grips with this before you can understand the graciousness of Jesus Christ. So listen, the question is not, when I recognize who I really am, as, as David has at the beginning of this psalm, the question is not, how could a loving God send people to hell? The question is actually, how could a holy and righteous God forgive me? That's the question. As you look at the gospel, you see, over and over again, who I am and who you are, the question is not, how could he do this to me? The question is, how could he forgive me? And so it leads us to this conclusion. As you start to, to try to figure out how, how do we live this Christian life, the, mature, the, the mark of a mature believer as we grow in Christ is the growing hatred of my own sin. That's, that's how I know I'm growing in Christ, is that I, I hate the things that I do. I hate the sin that I possess. And so we come to this conclusion, because we, we live in a world, and, and I don't mean outside of the church, ever increasing inside of the church. We're living in a world that says, just come here on Sundays, put on a brave face, and then go live the way you want to the rest of the week. We cannot play with sin. You got to call it what it is. You got to recognize what it is in you. I got to recognize what it is with me. And I got to seek through Christ to walk from it. He's purchased that freedom, but we do not play with sin. We don't spend our time looking for loopholes around it. We don't spend our time saying, well, well surely this applied to somebody else and not me. No, we do not play with sin. Church, we got to take it that serious. Because we're experiencing an infiltration of the world's wisdom into the church. Different social issues of the day have started to creep into the church and they've clouded our view of, of who God is and what he's called us to be. And we've started to make these compromises over and over again. And, and here's the deal. It will destroy us. It will. Sin is that serious 
So we, we, don't, we don't build a church or build our theology around the ever-changing wisdom of the world. We, we stick to the word of God and we say, whatever's out there in the culture, the world's gonna do what the world's gonna do, but we are taking our cues from the word of God which does not change. So the church cannot be a place that glorifies sin. We cannot be a place that looks for loopholes that starts to compromise because somebody close to me is experiencing one sin or another. We stick to the word of God. And so what is the church then? The church is not a collection of people who gather on a Sunday morning to talk about how great we are. (laughs) The irony of the church is that we're a collection of people who, who have joy after confessing how wretched we are. So we're not in patting our backs saying, man, we've, we've got this figured out. No, we are a collection of people that come together recognizing I, I have a sinful nature. The desires of my heart apart from Christ are only the things that walk away from him. And yet, Christ has come. And yet, Christ has saved me. So we're not a collection of people who say, I've got it figured out. We're a group of people who find joy in the fact that Christ has it figured out. Verse two. Got a long ways to go. We've got to hurry up. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's the moment when David recognizes his personal guilt. That, that, that I have been a part of, of adultery. I've been a part of murder. And, and that's just today. That David starts to recognize that there is a pattern in me that leads me to this conclusion. Surely I, this is... This is my nature that I've been born with. Gosh, that we see so often in our culture that that becomes the excuse for why we find ourselves drawn to a particular sin. This is just the way I was born. This is just how God made me. And this is, this is a myriad of sins. David comes to this conclusion. That is not an excuse. It's the problem. We've been born into sin. We were born with a sinful nature. So we're not going to walk and and live in accordance with it. We need something else. So David says, I I recognize who I am. And ultimately, God, I, I recognize that my sin, no matter if I'm able to keep it out of the public eye, no matter if I'm able to, to clean myself up in front of you so that you at least feel like I don't have anything that I walk in in sin, if I clean all of that up, David comes to this conclusion, you still know. 
And first and foremost, God, I've sinned against you. And so because of that, David comes to this conclusion that when you judge me as a sinner, when, when in your holiness you, you tell me I, I, can't, I can't have a part of sin, I'm not going to overlook it. I'm not going to give certain allowances for it. I'm not going to make compromise with it. David says, you're right in that. You're holy in that. Let me, let me tell you as quickly as I can why this is good news for you and I. If God makes compromises with my sin and your sin, then he is no longer holy. If he is no longer holy, then his son that he sent is no longer holy. If his son that was sent for you and I is no longer holy, then the death that he died was in vain, and you and I are still stuck in our sins. We are a people to be pitied, not a people with joy. So David says, you're, you're right to judge the way that you do. It, it, is, it is for our benefit that you can have no part of sin. And so when you tell an unrepentant person to depart from you, you're right. And, and let, me, let me start here. This is the default position of all of humanity. So for an unrepentant person who has not come to Christ and laid down his own trying to, to build up this facade of holiness himself, this is the default position. Depart from me. An eternity apart from Christ. This is our default position. David says, this is, this is my nature. This is the way I was born. I deserve death from the moment I was conceived. And so it makes the grace of Christ all the more glorious. Verse six. Yeah, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So, so this is a moment of desperation as David writes this psalm. He says, from the moment I was conceived, I was born with a sinful nature, deserving of death, deserving of wrath, and he comes to this conclusion, the only way I can be clean is because of you. So God, cleanse me. And there's an absolute here. Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. There's a, a confidence, a trust in David that says, Lord, because you are who you say you are, when you declare that I'm clean, I am clean. When you declare I'm forgiven, I am forgiven. And it leads him to declare what he does in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. I'll be honest, as we talk about the issue of joy so far in the first seven or eight verses, it doesn't seem like a message that elicits a lot of joy from us. Let me tell you how bad you are. Let me, let me tell you how sinful you and I are. It doesn't produce a lot of joy. But David recognizes this, if I don't start here, 
if I don't start from, from this spot, that I am a sinful person that should be cast out from the presence of God for all of eternity, and he is right in that judgment, then I don't understand the graciousness of him sending his son for me. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. I go back to my default position, especially in our context of I'm not that bad. And if I'm not that bad, then, then Christ's sacrifice for me isn't all that needed. It's a nice thing to have, but not necessarily a necessity. I can do this on my own. And David comes to the conclusion, there is nothing you can do. It is only through him. And in that, when David recognizes the absolute depravity of himself, the utter hopelessness that he possesses in his sin, he comes to this conclusion, because you've done this for me, how can it not produce joy? How can I not praise you? How can I not sing your praises because of what you've done? Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David starts to move through, through the gospel message of, of salvation and now he's walking in this idea of sanctification. Uh, the fact that that God has not just forgiven me and left me to walk in the ways that I used to. God has now given me a completely new heart to walk in his ways. What you need to understand, it is only through Christ that anything good that you do has any eternal merit. And it's through the work of sanctification that this new heart that God has given me now through his Son allows me to start to walk in obedience with him. Here's what you need to understand. Apart from him, the Christian life is impossible. You can fake it, but a true Christian life, apart from Christ coming and apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is absolutely impossible. And so David says, now, Lord, you've saved me, Change my heart and allow me to walk in your ways. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. What David is not doing in this moment is saying, God, if you save me, then I will do this. This is not David making a deal with God. What David is saying is because I recognize the utter sinfulness of myself and understanding what you've done for me, how can I not declare this? How can I not say to everyone, this is the way to be saved? This is often where we stop. You're too busy. You're too afraid. You're not confident enough. 
to take the same posture as David. David says, I recognize who I am apart from you. As I, I look out and I see people not walking in your ways, who am I to not tell them this is the way to be saved? So David says, God, because you've done this, my role now is I'm going to tell fellow sinners like me, this is where salvation is found. This is your role. This is my role. This is your role as believers in Christ. Not to say, here's what I've done to clean myself up. Here's, here's how I've made my image in society look better. No, the response of us is to say, I was dead to sin. Let me show you where I found life. And we declare that to fellow dead people. <laughs> Let me show you where life is found. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. No, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. It's an acknowledgement of David to say, God, if, if there was something that I could do, if there was some sacrifice, if there was some work that, that I could do to, to bridge this gap between you and I, I would do it but I've come to the conclusion that because of my sin, I am incapable of building a right relationship with you. That in fact, apart from you, every good work that I've done has not moved the needle an inch. And so, Lord, I come not bringing sacrifices, not bringing these works that apart from you mean nothing. I come only with a broken heart declaring, you are the way to be saved. So David confesses his sin. He, he says, Lord, you, you've got to clean my heart. I, I recognize the only way I can walk in this obedience to you and, and become more and more like you is if you give me a new heart. God, you are the sole actor in salvation. If there was any other way, I'd do it. But all I can bring is a broken heart declaring my utter incapability of saving myself. Then he ends in verse 18 and 19 with a, with a prayer for his people. He says, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Again, he's saying, Father, because I recognize what you've done for me, then I'm going to declare it to all people. And, and Father, then as we acknowledge that you are the perfect sacrifice, then we make our sacrifices not as a way to bridge the gap between you and us, but as a declaration of praise for what you've done. In other words, the life that we live out of this is because of what he's done and who he is. So we walk in obedience to him. We, we call sin what it is. We don't compromise with it. We don't play with it. We run from it. Why? Because we recognize that he is who he says he is. He is a holy, righteous, good God. Uh, last night, 
<laughs> I did something I, I probably shouldn't do. I, I got on uh, the holy place that is Twitter. Um, I, I tried for a while to get away from it, and it pulled me back in. But I, I got on there, and, and a, a fellow pastor that I follow, he was asking a series of questions. And one of the questions that he asked was this. He said, too many unchurched people will cry at the message of Good Friday and Easter. And yet they'll walk away completely unchanged by it. Why? And I sat and thought about it for a while. And I think it comes back to what we've talked about this morning. I think it comes back to when the depths of our sin aren't recognized then the death of Jesus is just a good man who died a horrible death. We have feelings, we have emotions, it's awful. Of course it's gonna elicit some response. But the question that he asked was, why, why does it not produce a changed life? Why does it not produce a changed heart? And listen, the same question may be asked of some of you. Why do we hear the gospel message? Why do we hear the message of Easter, of what Christ has done? And we can get emotional and yet leave this place and be unchanged in the way that we live our lives. Well, again, I think the answer is that we don't understand how sinful we actually are. We feel like we're good enough we're decent enough, we're moral enough that if God was good, how could he cast me away from his presence? The reality of the gospel message is apart from him, how could he not? He's a righteous, holy God. And it's for our benefit that he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And so on the flip side of the answer to that question is when we recognize our utter sinfulness, our utter depravity, Jesus' death and resurrection becomes our only hope. It's my prayer today that you would see yourself for who you are. Listen, I I love you. And I, I love you enough as my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Uh, to remind us of of who we are. We are a collection of sinful people left to our own devices. We are a collection of people who don't, again, come in and, and talk about how great we are and how we've got this life figured out. We're a collection of people who say, God, it is but for your grace and your grace alone. Uh, Apart from that, I deserve to be cast from your presence. Don't miss the magnitude of your sin because if you do, you will miss the magnitude of the gospel message. You'll miss the magnitude of the death. You'll miss the magnitude of the burial. You'll miss the magnitude of the resurrection. You'll miss the magnitude of when he comes again. Recognize your sinfulness so you can recognize what you're able to comprehend of his holiness. Father, make us this people. 
I I pray that we would be a people who recognize that we're not good. That apart from you, everything that we do that appears moral, that that appears to be a, a, a good for society, does not move the needle in our change in our eternity. It does not change our status. Father, it is only by your Son that we are saved. Father, I pray that if we've, we've lived a life and built up this facade of trying to do it ourselves and, and work for our salvation, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, cause us to lay down at your feet and surrender our lives to you. Submit to you saying, God, you, through your Son, are the only way to life. Father, may we come to the end of ourselves like David did. A recognition of his sinfulness and an even greater recognition of your holiness. Father, mature us through your Holy Spirit as we strive to walk in your word. Those who have accepted your gift of salvation through your Son as we we seek to be clean. We seek to be given a new heart day by day and walk in obedience. Father, prepare us for what's to come. Prepare us to declare absolute truth that is your word in the face of a world who has turned away from it. In the face of a world who has become openly hostile to it. May we stand courageous and stand on the firm foundation that you are. Father, we can have this courage and this boldness because of your son who through his death, burial, and resurrection has given us life. Father, may we see this life for what it is. And we see the next with a glimpse of the glory that awaits. It's in your name that we pray these things.